Father, we bow our heads before you and recognize that in this room are so many different people going through so many different things with so many different needs. And Lord, we can't imagine how you could interact with each one of us, but we thank you that you've given us your word and told us that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the words that come from your mouth. And so there is for all of us the need for this word this morning at this time. We pray that we would be sobered by these words. We are hearing Jesus speak of the end of final justice and judgment. We pray that you might not let us be callous or glib to these words, for in them you are speaking of the end of all things and our eternal destinies. And so we pray that if we are careless, that you would make us sobered by these words. If the thought of you coming and your justice and judgment terrifies us, then we would be comforted by these words. But either way, that you would engage us by your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, Seven Mile Road, our aim this morning is to conclude our sermon series on justice. We began this some eight weeks ago, and I hope and pray together with all of you that this has been meaningful to you. In fact, our prayer has genuinely been that God would have throughout these eight weeks and the things that we've said and considered in his word have planted in your heart seeds that would grow into tens of thousands of acts of obedience, tens of thousands of small and great acts of righteousness, and righteousness being that word we defined as disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of others, that there might be in small ways and great ways many things that come as a result of our time together, that our hope would be that we would together put flesh on these things that we've talked about that are yet to be imagined or dreamed, that there would be efforts undertaken and initiatives started, endeavors that we might give ourselves to as we seek to obey God and reflect this God of justice as we've talked about. We started some eight weeks ago beginning by saying the first thing we're going to do is look at Psalm 146. If you remember we said as we enter this conversation about justice we want to praise the Lord of justice and Psalm 146 said that God is the God who is the father of the fatherless and the husband to the widow, the one who sets the captives free and feeds the hungry and so praise the Lord who himself is the God of justice and from there we went and talked about how justice relates to our faith we looked at Isaiah 58 and said if we have true worship the kind of fasting God demands is that we would break the bonds of wickedness and set the oppressed free and share our bread with the hungry because then our righteousness Isaiah 58 will shine like the noonday sun and go before us and our gloom will be turned to high noon we went from there to consider how all of this deals with practical things. We talked through abortion. We talked through racial reconciliation and shalom, the flourishing and peace and well-being of our city. We talked through refugees and even last week the persecuted church to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. To then, then we want to end by looking towards the end. And that's because that's what this passage does for us. That's where this passage takes us. We're in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. If you have a Bible, you're going to need to turn to page 831. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. And when you get there, you'll see that Jesus is speaking, and he's going to give us a preview of the end. He's going to give us a glimpse into the future when there will be finally and forever and fully justice. Hear that. 
we've been talking about justice for these eight weeks, but there is a day coming, Matthew says, when Jesus will return, and when he does, there will finally and forever and fully be justice. There will be a world where there is no more injustice. I mean, if you just let your Holy Spirit-driven imagination think of that world, you imagine a world that's coming that the Bible would encourage us to dream about, a world in which no child will ever be harmed, whether inside the womb or outside of it. There will never be scars from which we need to be healed. There will be no refugees, no one from fleeing from one place of the earth to another because of danger, because there will be no such thing as danger. And there will no, be no part of the earth where you're not welcome because the children of God will inherit the earth. Every piece of the earth will belong to you. A, a world in which there will never again be uttered a racial slur. It will never be spoken. It will never be heard. A world in which no one will ever be, even for a moment, made to feel inferior. There will never be a place where you feel like you don't belong. In fact, you will be welcomed into every crowd. When you walk into a room, it will be as though you belong there, as though everyone there is your best friend. You will always feel like you belong. A world where there will be no jail cells, no soup kitchens, no homeless shelters, no crisis hotlines, no protests, no marches, no demonstrations. There, there will be no law except the law of God, and it will be written on our hearts, and we will obey it gladly. There will be no politics. There will be no parties. There will be no government except God's own, and he will be the throne, and we will be his people. There is a world like that coming, a world of shalom, a world of peace, a world of flourishing. But in order for that to come, Matthew 25 would say Jesus needs to come. And preceding that world of flourishing, that world we long for, the world of justice, Jesus will first come as king and judge to judge the world. Preceding that world of justice will be Jesus coming as king to judge the world. We said a few weeks ago, God's ultimate plan for justice, God's ultimate plan for justice is not a plan, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ, and when he returns, he will usher in a world of justice. But in order to do so, there will first be this judgment, this justice that will come, and it will finally and forever and fully be here. But first, there will be a judgment that separates all the world into two categories. This is what Matthew 25 says. Let me give you some background before we look at it. When you get to Matthew 25, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's in his final week of his life before he'll go to the cross. In fact, in chapter 26, in the very next chapter, he will quickly be led through events that lead to his death, his crucifixion, and his killing. So Matthew 25, then, is the final section of Jesus' teaching before he dies. You get that? This is the last bit of instruction. These are his final words before he's led to the cross in the form of teaching. It begins, actually, back in chapter 24, and it starts with this section where the disciples have asked, when will the end of everything come? And Jesus, from chapter 24 on, begins to tell them a number of stories and parables, whereby he's addressing this question of when. When's the end coming? And he doesn't give them the end, but he tells them they need to be ready, because it'll come without you thinking about it. And then, here in chapter 25, they've asked, when will the end come? While he doesn't tell them when the end will come, he does tell them what will happen when the end comes. 
He doesn't say when it will come, but he says what will happen when it comes, and it starts in verse 31. Here's what will happen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Imagine you're the disciples hearing this. You had just seen earlier that week Jesus come into Jerusalem. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem, you had just heard the crowds cry out. They waved their palm branches and they cried out Hosanna and they declared this Jesus to be a king. But as the events of that week unfolded, that was still up for debate. Meaning, was he really a king? That was still up for question. It would still be tossed around. And the reason would be, after all, when Jesus came in, he didn't come riding in a chariot or on the back of a stallion. He came riding on the back of a donkey. And when Jesus came, he didn't come with an army except for some former fishermen now turned disciples with him. And when he came, he didn't establish a dynasty or a kingdom in Jerusalem. If anything, as the weeks unfolded, he was treated like a criminal. He didn't get a crown except one of thorns. He wasn't lifted high and exalted except on a cross. And so at the end of the week, you were still left wondering, is Jesus king? But here, Matthew 25, 31 says, when he comes again, it'll be different. When he comes again, it won't be like how he rode into Jerusalem. When he comes again, he will come in his glory. Meaning, at that point, there will be no question, no debate, no conversation, no confusion. There'll be no back and forth. There'll be no tossing this subject around. There'll be no people discussing the matter. When he comes, he will come in all his glory. And he will come, it says, with an army of angels. All the angels of the heavenly host will come with him. And when he comes, he will sit on his glorious throne, meaning that Jesus will sit on his throne and he will be universally, world over, recognized as king. And then as king, he will judge the world and bring about finally and fully and forever justice. Sitting on his throne, he will do what a king does. He will judge. He will judge the world. In fact, that's what you see in verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The scene is when Jesus returns in all his glory with all his angels, and he sits on his throne, then before Jesus will gather all the nations of the world. Meaning all the peoples, and the word nation there is all the ethnicities, all the people groups, all the tribes, all the languages, all people will come and stand before Jesus. You imagine in your mind's eye, all the people who ever ever lived on this pale blue dot called earth, all the people in all time, in all places who have ever lived before this earth will stand before Jesus and each one In this ocean of humanity, each one, one by one, you and me included, one by one, we will pass before the judgment seat of Jesus. And one by one, Jesus will separate us, one group or the other. As a shepherd, the image here is that this king is also a shepherd. He's a a shepherd king. And it says it's almost as he separates sheep from goats. From what I've read this week, a shepherd can have both in his flock, that a flock might have sheep and goats, but at the end of the day, they're different. They're not the same. 
For example, goats don't like the cold, and so they have to be brought in, whereas the sheep can be left out. And so at the end of the day, even if they graze together for a while, there will be a separation, and the sheep will be placed in one herd, and the goats in another. Likewise, Matthew 25 says, every single one of us, every single one of you, me, all who have ever lived, will stand before Jesus' throne and be separated either as a sheep to his right side or as a goat to his left. You imagine that scene with me, that while there may be a great multitude of people in your mind's eye, an ocean of human beings, and you're just one face in an ocean of people, the scripture says each one of us, one by one, almost as if we're walking through a turnstile, One by one will have to go, meaning you can't at that moment hang on to the coattails of your dad's faith. You can't ride in on your spouse's spirituality. You can't go in as a family. Each one of us, each one of you and me will pass before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, he will separate us either to the right or to the left. And here's a spoiler alert for you. Friend, you trust me. When that day comes, you want to be a sheep and not a goat. And you want to be on the right side of God's justice and not on the wrong side of it, not on the left side of it. When that day comes, you want to be a sheep because here's what the king of justice and judgment says to the sheep. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right side, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. O Christian, in your mind's eye, with your Holy Spirit-driven imagination, could you imagine yourself standing in that great assembly? Could you imagine by grace alone, through nothing that you have done, being herded to the right side? Could you picture yourself standing in that company of men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation all around you and part of you wondering, did he make a mistake? Am I really supposed to be on the right side? But can you picture yourself standing there on the right side and there King Jesus from his throne looking in your direction? And can you picture his voice as it roars over this ocean of people beside you and yet rings at the same time personally in your ears. And he looks in your direction and he looks to you and he says, come, come, Ebby, or come, Freddie. And he calls you out and he says, come, that you would be invited to come, you who are blessed by my Father, for whom the kingdom has been prepared from the foundation of the world. That he would look in your direction and look to you and say to you, My Father has counted you blessed. And he has prepared for you a kingdom from the foundation of the world. Meaning, from when God said, Let there be light, a kingdom was already ready for you. That God from before he had hung stars in the sky or fastened the mountains to the floor, he had already written your name into the will. It has been his eternal purpose to hand to you his kingdom. Come, he says, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Friend, you want to be a sheep on that day. 
and you want to be on the right side. For then he will say this to the sheep. Look at verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we seek you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now it's a wonderful passage, a beautiful section. But at the same time, if you're here... And if you've ever heard or believed the gospel, that is the good news, the central message of the Christian faith, you know that from cover to cover, the gospel says that we are saved by grace through faith, through nothing we've done. And so if you've ever heard or believed the gospel, when you hear this passage, it probably, at least at first, would make you sort of scratch your head. It would make you scratch your head because at first read, at least for me, it sounds an awfully lot like Jesus is saying, The sheep are let into the right side, that is, they're saved, or we would say they're in heaven, because of what? It sounds like he's saying, because of what the sheep do. It sounds like Jesus is saying, if you do all the things we've been talking about for eight weeks, if you feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, if you clothe the naked and welcome the refugee, if you pray for those who are in prison, if you visit those who are sick, then you can come to the right side. It sounds, at least at first read, as if Jesus is saying something that sounds like what all the religions say. On its own, Matthew 25 would be a passage that your friends, everyone in our city would say, see, this is what we've been saying all along. Wouldn't you just realize Christianity is a path like all paths? And its basic message is the same as every message, which is you should be a good person. What should you be? You should be a person who feeds the poor, who clothes the naked, who visits the sick, who helps those in prison. And if you do those things, you will be a sheep on the right side. On its own, Matthew 25 sounds like every other religion and worldview. But here's the thing. Of course, Matthew 25 is not on its own. If nothing else, Matthew 25 is at least, most immediately, a part of Matthew And Matthew chapter 1 itself starts by saying, you're going to call this man who's born into the world Jesus because he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. Meaning Matthew 1 itself announced there wasn't enough poor people you could feed, enough naked people you could clothe to ever save yourself. And so there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. So Jesus came to save us from our sins. From cover to cover of Matthew, it would tell you, you are not saved by what you do. And of course, Matthew 25 is not only just a part of Matthew, it's a part of the rest of the Bible. And from cover to cover, the message of the Bible is what? Sheep are not saved by what they do, but what their shepherd has done for them. Right? I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. This is the gospel. That we're not saved by our works, but by his work in our place and for our sins. And so if you take Matthew 25 in light of Matthew and the whole of Scripture... Here's what this passage would say. This passage would say the people on the right side are not sheep because they do justice. 
but rather they do justice because they are sheep. Does that make sense? Because it's different and it matters. It's not doing works of justice that make them sheep, but rather because they are sheep, this is what sheep do. They feed the poor. They clothe the naked. They visit the sick and imprisoned. They welcome the stranger. They do these things because they are sheep. In other words, their works don't make them sheep, but rather their works reveal that they are sheep. Their works don't make them into sheep, but they are the evidence that they are sheep. You, you think of fruit on a tree. If you see fruit on a tree, you don't say that the fruit produces life in the tree. But rather you say fruit is evidence that there is life in the tree. The fruit doesn't make the tree alive, but rather because the tree is alive, there will be fruit. Justice doesn't make you a sheep, but because you are a sheep, you will do works of justice. That's what Matthew 25 is saying. Those on the right side do what they do because they are who they are. They are sheep. They've been transformed by the shepherd. And they do these things. And Matthew 25 would say to us then, if you are sheep, then you will do these things. Right? This is the point. Part of this is seen in just the fact that Jesus has already said, for you has been prepared from the foundation of the world a kingdom. Meaning, before you fed anyone, before you clothed anyone, before you had done a single work of justice, a kingdom was prepared for you. Not in response to what you've done, but before what you've done. Because you do what you do because you are who you are. Part of that is seen also in the surprise of the sheep. Isn't that a great twist in this story? That as Jesus speaks to the sheep, as he says, this is what you did, and this is what you did, and this is what you did, it sounds as if they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Did you catch that in verse 37? Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when were you sick or in prison and we came and visited you? Isn't that striking? That what Jesus says to them essentially catches them totally off guard. That they have no recollection or no idea what Jesus is talking about. And if nothing else, here's what that means. It means that the sheep weren't in life doing this and keeping a record of it all and tallying it up and putting it on their resume so they could finally give it to Jesus. That on the last day, they had a resume of all the good things they had done and said, here's why you should let us in on the right side. It seems they were totally oblivious to it had forgotten it, or hadn't counted it as Jesus had. They weren't doing this in order to become sheep. They were doing this because they are sheep. It'd be like this, Road. You imagine in your mind's eye that on that last day, Jesus looks at you and says, when I was recovering from cancer surgery, you came and visited me. Do you remember when I was in need and you signed up for meal train and brought me over a meal? Do you remember when I was rescued from the brothels and you provided for me? They brought me into that school and you educated me. Do you remember when I had just come into the country and you welcomed me? Tell me, would we not say to Jesus, Jesus, when did you ever have cancer? And when were you in a brothel? And when did you ever need to be educated? And when did you ever come into a country? 
And Jesus would say to us, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now that phrase there, least of these, my brothers, throughout Matthew, whenever Jesus speaks of the least of these or my brothers, it's always about his disciples, other followers of Christ. And the amazing thing of what Jesus is saying here is, Jesus, it means in this passage, has so identified with his people that whether or not you receive followers of Jesus is a measure of whether or not you have received Jesus himself. Jesus so identifies with his people that to the measure you love his people, it's the measure that you love him. So identifies with his people that how you relate to them is an indicator of your relationship with him. Now listen, this passage is not trying to say for us that we should only do these kinds of things for other Christians. Right? Though he's saying what you do for the least of these, my brothers, and he's speaking of other followers of Jesus, this passage isn't trying to narrow down who we love and serve. We know that just from the life and ministry of Jesus itself. Jesus constantly fed people who didn't turn to follow him. He constantly ministered and did miracles for and helped people who didn't turn to be his disciples. Moreover, just two weeks ago, we heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. What else is the Good Samaritan if not a warning to religious people Do not narrow down who you're supposed to help. The the whole question was based on, Jesus, tell me who my neighbor is so I can know exactly who I'm responsible to help. And Jesus blows the definition open to say, your neighbor is anyone you have power to help. That's who your neighbor is. And so the question is, what kind of neighbor are you? Nothing about Jesus' life, ministry, or teachings would narrow this to say, we're only to help Christians. But at the same time, at least in this passage, Jesus is envisioning that his followers will form communities that where you belong to his community, none in his community would be forgotten. Not the least of those in his community would be overlooked, would be marginalized because of their standing in society. How it works in the world will not be how it works among Jesus' community. Jesus envisions that his followers would create these kinds of community. His sheep will make these kinds of community where the least of these are cared for and the most insignificant of his disciples are ministered to. Samarod, I want us to hear, for us, if you let that in, I think it has the power to cut our heart. I I think that this passage is saying you have biblical permission to see Jesus in the brothers and sisters around you. You have biblical permission so that if a brother or sister calls you over for help, you have biblical permission to think Jesus Christ is calling me and asking me for help. If if a person here needs a meal train, you have permission to think Jesus Christ is in need of a meal. And if you begin to think like that, I think it can cut our hearts as to how you view one another here. The least of these among us, the most insignificant among us, It could change the way you talk to, think about, relate to, have a conversation with a person here. Because you look at that person, and I would get cut to the heart and say, I have borrowed the world standards for how a person is worth and valued. But the scriptures here would say, when you look at the least of your brothers and sisters, you are to see Christ. 
How would that change the way you talk to them, engage them, conversed with them, helped them, met their needs, gave them your time and attention, so that you would know what I do for the least of Jesus' community. He counts as done unto him. Because this passage is saying, our attitude to the least of his disciples reflects and reveals our attitude towards him. That's what the passage is saying. How you love one another here reflects how you love him. And where we are cut to the heart, we should repent. That I have borrowed the world standards for how I see the worth and value of people, even here. So I ought to see Christ in the brothers and sisters around me. Here's what we're saying, Seven Mile Road. This whole series, this whole series comes down to this. We don't do justice to become Jesus' sheep. But rather, if we are Jesus' sheep, then we will do justice. We don't do works of justice in order to become sheep. But if we are sheep, we will do works of justice. And Samar wrote, when you consider the gospel, the central message of the Bible, what we proclaim week in and week out, does this not make perfect sense? Because if you've believed the gospel, believe the message of Christianity, then you've believed that from the beginning of the scriptures, God seems to have always identified with the poor, with the weak, with the vulnerable. He's not like the gods of the ancient religions that always hung out with the elite, with the captains and the military heroes and the, the chiefs and the priests and the presidents. The God of Israel always seemed to identify himself as the father to the orphan and the husband to the widow and the caretaker of the refugee, alien and stranger. That's where God always was. And yet, we did not know just how much he identified with the poor, with the people in the margins, until Jesus came. And when Jesus came from the very hour of his birth, do we not see just how much God is identified with the least? He was born into a feeding trough. Born to two parents who were so poor they offered pigeons for sacrifice. Literally the lowest sacrifice for the poorest of poor. That man grew up and as he did, he said sentences like, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head down. He was a homeless, wandering minister. In fact, if you read Luke 8, his life was supported by the financial help of some women. Some godly women supported Jesus. That's how he lived. By the support of these women and their means, his needs were provided for. And all the way into his last hour, as preachers often say, in his last week, what did he do? He borrowed another man's donkey to ride into town. He borrowed another man's room to have one last supper with his disciples. And after he was crucified and killed, he had to borrow another man's tomb just to be laid for a place of rest. And on this last week, this Jesus was imprisoned. And then on the cross, this homeless man thirsted, was stripped naked, and died penniless and poor. This is the gospel. And moreover, the gospel message says, all that happened to him for us. That he did that for us. Because does not the gospel say in Corinthians, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Because the rest of the gospel message says, he did this, why? Because we were spiritually hungry. Were we not? We were spiritually thirsty. 
looking for one thing after another to quench this unquenchable thirst in our life. We were spiritually the stranger. Ephesians 2, you were aliens and strangers to the things of God. We were the ones who were sick, not just sick, Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were the ones who were imprisoned. John 8, you were slaves to sin, your father Satan himself, chained by our addictions and our sins. And yet for our sake, our gospel message is what? The shepherd king became all those things for us. The shepherd king became thirsty. The shepherd king was imprisoned. The shepherd king was made naked. The shepherd king was cast out like a stranger. Why? Because the gospel message finally says, so that we might be what? Fed. In a moment, you're going to come to a table, and Jesus is going to say to you, take, eat. This is my body given for you. So that we might be given drink. John 4, I am the living water. He who drinks of me will never thirst again. So that we might be clothed. Colossians, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are clothed and covered with Christ. So that you might be welcomed. Ephesians 2, though we were strangers, now you are citizens of God and co-heirs with Christ and children of God. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. You were set free. Whomever the Son sets free is free indeed. All these things have been happening for you through the gospel. And if you believe that, then when a Christian sees a weak and vulnerable and poor person, then a Christian who really understands the gospel and grace looks at that person and says, that brother is a mirror because he is physically what I have been all along spiritually. That blind, poor beggar is physically what I have been spiritually. And the person that understands the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ will do justice, will show mercy because he has experienced, she has experienced the mercy of God. We do justice not in order to get saved by Jesus. We do justice as evidence that we have been saved by Jesus. And this passage would say, if justice is missing in your life, if there is not a compassion or a care for the least of these, then you need to go and not just today commit yourself to doing better. One preacher rightly said, that'd be like trying to take apples and staple them onto a dead tree. No, you have to deal with the fact that there might be life missing in this tree. It's not for me to tell you, go from here and commit to doing better from now on, trying harder. Instead, ask the Lord, what is missing in my understanding of the gospel? What is missing in my understanding of grace? What is missing in my experience of grace that my heart isn't moved in light of all the things you have done for me? And repent and believe again and ask him to warm your cold heart and soften your hard heart and make the unbelieving parts of your heart believe again. If there is no justice in our lives, we should ask, have I really believed? Have I understood this gospel, or worse yet, have I not received it at all? And it's to that second group of people that Jesus closes this passage. I'll just read it for you, and then we'll be done. 
He addresses the people on his left, the people who have never experienced grace, who have not come in contact with the king, who have not received the gospel. And he says these words of horror to our ears. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These sobering words said to the left side means that the people there are opposite in every way in this passage. In every way, they are the exact opposite. The sheep are told, come. They are told, depart. The sheep are called sheep. They are called goats. The sheep are called those who are blessed by the Father. They are called those who are cursed. One is on the right side, the other on the left. One is given a kingdom that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the earth. The other is given a future that was prepared primarily for the devil and his angels. One ministered to Jesus, the other was totally indifferent to him. And therefore, one is led to life eternally. And one is led to punishment eternally. This is what it means. And, and in this sobering section, would you also hear, you don't hear of any great crime that they did. Just that they were indifferent. And that should cause alarms to go off and say, if there is indifference in my heart, that's the same group of people that ended up on the left. So I repent again to the Lord Jesus and believe afresh and anew. Here's Matthew 25 and the end of this whole series. Justice is coming. Finally, forever, and fully when Jesus Christ returns. And friend, you do not want to be on the wrong side of his justice. You want to be on the right side because that day is going to present all kinds of surprises. That's what the text says. It's like C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised by who's there that we didn't think would be there. And we'll be surprised by who's not there that we were sure would be there. The day will hold all kinds of surprises. But in mercy, you are being told today so that you might not be surprised on that day. Let's pray together.